Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. This is the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about leadership and management with government executives and thought leaders who are truly changing the way government does business. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. What is the mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center, PSC? How does PSC support the business of government? And what is it doing to transform how it delivers services to its agency partners? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Mike Peckham acting chief financial officer and director of the financial management portfolio at HHS's Program Support Center. Mike, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for having me today, Michael. Um, It's my pleasure to talk about all the good stuff that the government can do, as well as what we're doing at the Program Support Center. So, Mike, let's start off by learning more about your organization. What is the mission of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center, PSC, and why was it established and how has it evolved to date? So I think it's a pretty simple answer. Um, I look at it as we provide administrative support services to our customers to help them achieve mission-related results. And we were established back in 1995, if my memory serves me correctly, and the idea concept was, hey, we've got a lot of duplicative work going on across several program offices. Wouldn't it make a little bit more sense to pull those administrative tasks into a centralized location so that our our program folks can focus on mission-related work? And by doing so, the goal from the beginning has always been to create economies of scale, which in theory, we can provide uh, broader support at a lower price to all of our customers. Wonderful. So, you know, interesting mission uh, so I'd like to understand operationally, Mike, how is the program support center organized? And maybe you could give us a sense of the mix and size of its products and services, the portfolio that you obviously lead, which we'll delve into a little deeper. But, but could you give us a sense of the of how the operation is funded as well? Um, sure. So we are, it's the service and supply fund within the Department of Health and Human Services. That's our overarching funding model. It's really a working capital fund, and within the service and supply fund, we have multiple different services that are provided. Program Support Center provides the the breadth or the the highest degree of breadth of those services. So within PSC, you have my area, which is the financial management portfolio, and we provide a whole host of, you you name it, if it's related to finances, uh, we're there. We have the acquisition management services, and as their title says, they handle our acquisitions. And that's for uh, across HHS. Uh, we also will take on business uh, externally. Haven't been doing a lot of that lately, but um, you know we are prepared and prepped to provide those services you know, whenever needed. We have the federal occupational health area, which most folks know they provide occupational health services across the federal government, not just to HHS. And then finally, we have the real estate logistics uh, operations. And that's a lot of uh, a lot of different areas. Um, I like to say it's from guard services to making sure you have space to sit and work, and it's pretty much everything in between. So that's kind of at the high level 
what PSC is providing at this current time. Great. And so I'd like to transition to uh, your actual role uh, and leadership role roles, if you will, at PSC. You mentioned you are the director of the financial management portfolio, but could you tell us more about your specific responsibilities and how uh, your dual role, as I understand it, how it actually supports the overall mission of HHS? Certainly. So my roles and responsibility as the acting CFO, I'm overseeing accounting operations. So that's your general accounts payable, accounts receivable, um, we also have a financial reporting service within our component uh, organization, and we provide financial reporting for the PSC customers as well as the Indian Health Service. And we have the cost allocation services, and the role of that organization is to negotiate indirect cost rates or overhead rates with states, universities, hospitals, and nonprofits. And then we have the grant financial management process, the you know, payment management services. And it's unique because it is the largest grants payment system, payment management system within the federal government. And to give you an idea of that, it's about a half, over half a million transactions every year, totaling over $600 billion last year in disbursements. But it not only handles the disbursement, it's also uh, capable of taking all the financial reporting that the recipients of those funds are required to um, provide back to the federal government. Mike, with such an important mission regarding your duties and responsibilities, what would you say are your top three management challenges that you've faced and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Well, I like that question because, uh, you know, you always have to start thinking when you think of challenges um, and you don't have to think very long. Number one on my list right now is hiring. So I have an organization that uh, fully staffed 170 uh, folks would be within my organization and recognizing that you're probably always going to have, you know, a five to 10% um, vacancy rate. Um, I'd love to get a lot closer to the 170 because I'm a lot closer to 130 right now. Um, and we really need to staff up. So that is honestly my number one goal. And, you know, we are putting announcements out on the street daily. So I'll put a little plug in. And if, if folks are interested in working for a great organization with a great purpose, great cause, uh, please, please look at those um, look at those announcements. I would say number two would be aging systems. We have a lot of monolithic systems. They were built quite some time ago. And while they meet the functional desires or the functional needs, they're not necessarily people-friendly systems. And a lot of times we have a lot of cuff systems that are around these, these you know, key systems in order to keep them running because we, we just haven't put the investments into the, the actual systems for um, you know, a few years at this point in time. And I would say my, my third biggest challenge, and I think this is a challenge that everybody is facing right now, is it's not just return to work, but it's understanding the workplace of tomorrow. Uh, I think that there's, a, there, there's without a doubt going to be a change um, what we're looking at as far as having folks in the office every single day and an entire contingency of staff there. We've managed throughout the last year and a half, and I think we've done an incredibly great job um, given the circumstances of you go home on Friday, what was it, the 13th of March, and on the 16th, you're told not to come back in. So I, I think we've done a great job there, but tomorrow's workplace is going to look very different. And what we need to be thinking about right now are the challenges that we've faced we're not gonna face them in the same manner we have over the last year and a half, but the challenges will still be there and let's make sure we overcome them. And for example, 
when you have projects, when you're in the office and you're meeting on a daily basis and you're able to talk to people, walk down the hall and grab somebody's arm, uh, it keeps projects right on target. When you have uh, the situation where you're doing a lot of virtual meetings, if one key person misses that meeting, you don't have the opportunity to walk down the hall and grab them and talk to them about what, what transpired in that meeting. And so it kind of creates that barrier of how do we get, how do we keep things on track and um, keep everybody updated and up to speed. So, you know, those are three challenges. Obviously, you know, there are more, but those are the ones that are pressing in my mind. You know, Mike, I was wondering, given these challenges, given your um, dual role and your portfolio that you manage and lead, what has surprised you most since coming to PSC? So my biggest surprise, uh, I've never considered myself to be a micromanager. I don't like to be a micromanager. And I'm a person who personally does not like being micromanaged. But I do love to get involved on hot topic items. And it's not from a perspective of I have to make every decision. I want to be involved and I want to support the process. What I found from the staff at uh, the Program Support Center is it's been a very positive reaction to my wanting to be involved. They really engage me. And I think that they're happy to see that senior leadership is taking a very active role in the work that they're doing. And it helps keep things, I, I will say, a little bit more on target because you don't walk away from a meeting saying, hey, we got to go talk to the CFO about this. If I'm in the meeting and I can talk to them and we can walk through the process together, and it's not Mike making a decision. It's the group making a decision that meets the needs of, you know, what is the goal we're trying to meet? And that to me has been incredible because I, I, I was afraid that I would get into these meetings and that folks would kind of be quiet, reserved and wait for me to make a, a decision or a determination. And it's been quite the opposite. It's been very engaging and rewarding. And uh, I hear from folks that they'd love to have me involved in more of the activities that they're working on and performing. I just wish I had enough time to get involved in all of them. I was wondering, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? And what leadership principles have guided you and how you lead? So interesting, and I could give you a typical you know, MBA response, but I, I, I'm going to go with my gut here. First of all, don't think you know everything because uh, I always approach meetings. Uh, anytime I, I get together with the more than two people, don't ever think you're the smartest person in the room that, you know, you're going to be proven wrong very, very quickly. We all have different strengths and we should look to, to play off the strengths of others. Playing off someone else's weaknesses isn't going to gain you anything but looking at their strengths and seeing how that you can incorporate those is, is incredible. I would also say, listen to your team. They know what's going on. A long time ago, I had two influential people in my life say to me the same thing, and they didn't know each other, and I found it amazing, but they said, you have two ears and one mouth for a reason. You should be listening twice as much as you're talking. And so I have certainly tried to keep to that my entire career, and, and it is enlightening, I will say. Finally, you know, from a characteristic point, recognize that everything is constantly evolving. And don't think for a second that because I said I was a payroll liaison previously, I'll bet you the work probably is pretty consistent to what I was dealing with when I did that, uh, that job 20 plus years ago now. But how they do it and the systems that they use to do the work has changed uh, like I probably could not imagine. So I shouldn't walk in, once you're six months out of a job, you can't really consider yourself to be the expert on the day-to-day -day operations of that job any, anymore because things have evolved. Leadership principles, 
Well, I miss management by walking around. Um, I am an extrovert. I feed off of, you know, go, getting out there, talking to people, getting involved. COVID has, has kind of uh, restricted that a little bit. So I am one of those few people who's looking forward to getting back in the office. I would say leading by example. When you're telling folks that they have to take training, let's face it, nobody really likes to take their annual training, you know, that are just requirements and you're pretty much going to be clicking through the same stuff you clicked through the year before. But if you can't say, hey, I've taken the training, the training only took me 25 minutes, just, just take the training and do it. Lead by example, let everybody know that you're invested in the organization to the minutia of training. And I think that you will have a very effective um, impact on the entire team. As I was talking about before, communication, communication, you've got to be talking and it's two-way communication. You can't just be sharing what your, your ideas and thoughts are. You have to be listening. It is a two-way street. And finally, I would say a little empathy goes a long way. Back to the point of things change, things evolve over time. You can't look at somebody who is in the exact same job that you were in five years ago and say, oh, I know exactly how they should be doing the job. No, you don't. They are a different person. They come from a different background. You need to get to understand that a little bit better so that you can help them to grow. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest swing. So make sure that you're open to the idea that other people have gone through different avenues getting to where they are in their career and it's not going to match yours how can we modernize debt management and collection services we'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the business of government hour To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Whitner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Mike Peckham, Acting Chief Financial Officer and Director of the Financial Management Portfolio at HHS's Program Support Center. In the previous segment, we talked about uh, some of the challenges, management challenges you face in your uh, dual role at PSC. I was wondering if you could take this time to outline your strategic vision for your portfolio and perhaps share with us some of the key strategic priorities that frame that vision. And I'm wondering, given the priorities, are there any internal drivers or external trends that have informed it? Well, the first thing I would say is the only constant is change, so don't fight it. Um, so when you're setting a strategic vision, recognize that you're going to have to probably adapt that strategic vision a little bit as you go through a process. I love what benefits emerging technology can provide to the community, the government community specifically, right now. 
Uh, we keep talking about emerging technology like it's something that we're going to do tomorrow, but um, that's not the case. There's there's so much opportunity, and I'm really focused on helping my team understand what those opportunities are. Uh, I, I think they look at the limitations. They don't necessarily see what the um, what the technology can do for them. They could probably look at something like Amazon and how simple Amazon has made it to buy something on the web where you can do comparison shopping, you can do everything except for trying that shirt on and you can return the shirt really, really easy if you don't do it well. But how can that type of approach be applied to their professional lives to create a better user experience for them? And I say that from the perspective of we've been using systems for a long time based on the functionality that the system brings to the table. The emerging technology has changed that dynamic, so it's time for us to change along with that. So as I understand it while I was preparing to talk to you, um, I found this fascinating. PSC operates more than 40 different collection programs. I don't even know if that number has changed across the federal government. Uh, can you tell us more about this program you offer? What types of debt do you collect? And what are some of the current processes and systems challenges in this area? So we are... As far as I'm aware, we are the only Treasury-designated debt collection center outside of Treasury. We use a system, the debt management collection system, and I, I will put this nicely, it's a little old. Um, it is one of those systems where we're using multiple cuff systems in order to manage the, uh, the work that's coming through, theoretically, the one system. Debts are all different based on statutory language. However, with that said, once you get them into the actual debt collection process, the process works similarly at the same time. So if you think about it from that perspective, you have to recognize, so they may have varying interest rates, penalties, administrative fees, but if we take the approach of, okay, if I have 40 different types of debt and they are slightly different, if I build a microservice, a microservice being one type of, of technological stack that can handle one type of these debt, I can probably reutilize that microservice 39 times instead of rebuilding it 39 times to add or subtract from the functionality of the microservice in order to meet the need of the particular type of debt that you're using. When you throw that into a singular system, that then creates really an economy of scales, because if you look at the critical path of debt management, the critical path being what are the activities that happen the same, no matter what type of debt you're doing, then you can alter your microservice to expand or contract to meet whatever that critical path is. I don't know if, if that's coming across clearly or not, but if, if conceptually you are looking at an 80-20 rule, where 80% of the time you're doing things exactly the same, and up to 20 percent of the time you deviate from that standard process, that is generally something from a process management and a systems management um, perspective that can be tackled, I'm not going to say easily, but a lower level of effort if you're well below that 80% um, bar. That's, that's fascinating. You know, I was wondering, it, it kind of hints at some of the things you're trying to do uh, with this process. And Maybe you could elaborate a little bit more about how it can be transformed, the collection process, and, and you know why is the user experience so important in any effort to sort of modernize debt collection services? And the other thing about that, and I think it factors into 
it is how has the pandemic impacted debt collection? Well, the, the first thing is we've seen a lot of debt forgiveness throughout the pandemic. And with my system, my current system right now, that wasn't an easy or quick lift and shift to say, oh, we're going to stop calculating interest, administrative fees, all that kind of stuff from this date to this date. It took quite a bit of effort in order for us to, to get there. I would say that's because our system currently isn't flexible. It's not adaptable. And um, it's really like a hard-coded monolithic style system that we're used to seeing from back in the 90s. When you think about what that means from a user perspective, if users are going into the system to do the main pieces of their work, and they're using cuff systems to add or subtract data, you know, you get an email from a, a debtor, and you have to get information into the system about that. And typically, it's got to be summary data because you can't just throw an entire email in because we have you know, uh, memory limitations on what can be uploaded, what can be downloaded. So from that perspective, I want to get a system in place that users trust, um, that users can challenge, that users can say, I don't like this process. And we need to have the infrastructure from the development side or you know, the modernization enhancement side that we can make the changes based on what the user is telling us is wrong and why they don't trust the system. I found in my, my work with reInvent Grants Management early on that some of, and, and this has been documented over and over again in business schools and books, some of my biggest challengers to what we were trying to get done through the reInvent Grants Management process became some of the biggest champions that supported us to the finish line because they didn't see value. They didn't see opportunity. We kept them engaged. We listened to them. We took their feedback and we utilized their feedback to show them that we could actually, first of all, listen to them, but secondly, do something about the pains that they were facing. So if you can turn around and get somebody who is very, I will say, critical of the work that you're doing, turn them into a champion for that work, that's some of the best change management um, you're ever going to see in any single project. And let's face it, these types of changes, each one is an incremental little project that's going to add up to some very, very big change in the organization. And, and the last thing I will say about that is when you're doing this, don't think about it as a system change. You've got to think about it as a cultural change because you're changing the way that folks are doing the work they've had on their desk for the last 20, 30 years. This isn't just a, hey, here's a new system, use the new system. You're kind of rocking their world a little bit. And you need to show the, again, the empathy towards that and help them understand. Don't convince them. Um, a lot of times I, I've heard that in, in some meetings where we've got a new system, we got to convince users. If you're convincing users to use it, it might be, in my opinion, a little bit of a backwards approach. Um, you want the users to be bought in up front and you want the users to be the champion for why they want this new system. And then adoption becomes much easier. That's a great insight. I thought it was interesting, Mike. Uh, I did not know this, but PSC administers one of the most widely used grant payment systems in the federal government, as I understand. Um, can you tell us a little bit more, Mike, how that system works? And are there any plans to, I guess, enhance this service offering? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my textbook answer on that is we own and operate the payment management system, the largest grants payment uh, system in the federal government. Um, 
I applaud my staff and the work that they do on that every single day. And, and right now, we are bringing on business faster than you can imagine. And it is really, really tough for them. Now, when it comes to the system, that system has an uptime of the last I checked, 99.7% of the time. And that's an uptime, you know, not due to a, a system upgrade or, or a patch or anything like that, which is pretty phenomenal. Um, definitely considering the age of the system. This was a system that was originally developed in the um, 70s. It has had a lot of enhancements over the years. It's now on an Oracle database, but there's still a good amount of work to be done on the system. So when, when you talk about, are the, you know, could there be plans for changing this? Absolutely. So the way the system works is once a grant is uh, established, awarded, we set up the financial information. It runs from the grants management system to our financial system. Financial system then feeds it to payment management system. Payment management is technically like a, a, a huge accounts payable subledger is the best way to describe it. Once it's in there, uh, the, the funding is in there and available to the recipient. Um, and we, we have a lot of security around this. So don't, don't think that this is something that's just a real simple, oh, it just passes through systems and boom, you got a, a grant set up. There's, there's a little bit more to it. But once it is set up, it's really a self-service type of concept where the recipients come in and they can come in as often as they need to. And they can request funds, what we call a draw of funds. If they have a award for a million dollars and they need to come in and they need to you know, get things set up and started and they want, need to draw $100,000 that first week, you know, generally, it shouldn't be a problem. We do have some rules. Uh, someone can't come in on the first day and draw a million dollars. That would be inappropriate. Um, so we kind of have some thresholds and, and, and things like that. We call them edits that have to be met. Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't override the edits. If we had somebody come in and say, we need $400,000 out of that million to start do a startup, we would simply say, talk to the program office and say, is this appropriate? And if the program office approves it, then we move forward with the payment. So um, it's very strict in what you can and cannot do, but obviously we have the overrides in place because there are always special or unique circumstances. Right now, there's a huge discussion, not just in the private sector, but in the federal government. Um, you probably may have heard that NSF and Treasury are both talking about grant blockchains for payments. To me, this is presenting a huge opportunity for us at the payment management uh, service to stop and pause, and let's not make a, a radical change today to what the system should look like tomorrow, because blockchain is a different approach. It's a different concept. I personally love the idea of you know, the distributed ledger and the immutability of the blockchain. I've always thought that this is something that we could really gain efficiencies from by implementing in, in any payment system. So this could be the catalyst for enhancement, but we're keeping our eyes closely on all those discussions and the outcomes, and we're, we're involved in, in every single one of those initiatives. Mike, I'd like to talk about another service you provide at PSC, and that's the negotiation service for indirect cost rates and cost allocation plans for federal agencies. Uh, can you tell us more about this program? What are some of the challenges uh, of executing this kind of service? And if you were to think about recasting this uh, process. Once again, why is it important to include human-centered design in that? So most folks don't, um, I didn't a while ago, understand what cost allocation services did, what they were all about. Um, when I rejoined um, HHS in 2010, I learned a lot about it very quickly. 
basically every grant is allowed to operate with a 10% de minimis administrative or overhead rate. And as I explained before, uh, we're looking at a 44% on average overhead rate. So you've got uh, a good reason to want to come to the cost allocation services and negotiate an indirect cost rate or an overhead rate that is higher than that 10%. Um, that's kind of the basis of what they do. Key to that, though, is while those negotiations are taking place, the cost allocation services, under guidance and law, negotiates in the best interest of the federal government. And I have honestly seen where we're one point away on, on a, a rate, you know, if it's 42 versus 43%. We do need to be, the, the rate can be challenged through uh, legal channels. Uh, we always want to make sure that we are sticking to what's appropriate and in the best interest of the federal government. And in most cases, that is what the final determined cost rate is. The benefit of what we do there is there's a lot of savings that you can see um, as a result. I, I say savings, more or less it's cost avoidance. Um, if you've got that 1% of administrative overhead rate and you apply that to a you know, let's say a $5 million contract, you're going to see significant cost avoidance right out of the gate. And that being in the best interest of the government, we always want to look for, look for opportunities in that area. The challenge around cost allocation is really keeping up with the volume. So as I said, you know, we're, we're looking for cost avoidance and we're looking for cash recoveries through the audits. I currently have 44 auditors. I'd love to expand the number of auditors, but the first thing that I'm doing is I'm looking at the system that are in place, and we are very soon going to go out with an RFP um, to see what folks can recommend and suggest to us as to how we can make this a better process from the user perspective, because right now there's a lot of information that we're getting from the recipients that. Um, when we go into negotiations with them, that we're obtaining it in paper copy, we're then putting it into one of two systems. And anytime you are, I'll, I'll say transposing the information, there's there's a likelihood there could be a fat finger or some other type of, of problem in it, it, that you're going to face. They could have a major downstream impact. And it's not, there's no malice or, or harm or malicious intent, I should say, but it happens. We need to look at this more from the perspective of, how do we get more data-driven information, raw data from the recipients? Most of the recipients that we're talking to today are doing the majority of the work they're doing in systems. So if we could start to talk to them about, rather than sending us a, a PDF or a Word document, can we just have an API so that we can exchange data? Um, e easy enough to do. It, it's not, you know, APIs are relatively simple to build. When you're working with the federal government, obviously, we have to get an authority to operate, you know, surrounding the system where we're going to exchange the data, and we have to have data sharing agreements. But I do think that if we look at that first and foremost, then I can go back to what's the business proposition for bringing in more folks? Will we see what will the savings look like over time if I go up to 46 negotiators instead of 44? But right now, I think the first and foremost thing we need to do is we need to look at those systems and make sure the systems can support the work that we're doing to the best of our ability. So, so Mike, uh, switching gears a bit, 
Would you tell us more about your efforts to enhance the travel post-payment audit process? And where I'm going with this is the use or application of robotic process automation, RPA, in, in enhancing it. And perhaps you could highlight some of the key challenges faced. And, and more importantly, what was the net benefit of applying this technology? What a fun, fun thing we did. So when I returned uh, to PSC, I was talking to my director and I said, hey, you know, I've played around in emerging technology. I see some big opportunities. Do you mind if I play around a little bit more while I'm here? And he said, be my guest. Um, just no money. You don't have any money to do this. So what I did was um, I talked to uh, my counterpart uh, who leads all the IT activities across uh, PSC. And it turned out that we had a couple of Blue Prism licenses just because that's what we had bought. Um, that weren't being used for RPA. So I went back to an area that I had worked in a long, long time ago. Now, I haven't done a travel post-payment audit since uh, early 90s. I think probably be a fair, safe uh, statement. And while I know that the process has probably changed, the elements of what you're looking at remain the same. Really, the systems have changed over time and things should have gotten easier. So um, I talked to my chief in the travel area, and Kathy was very candid with me. And she said, yeah, we're only doing 50 a month right now, and we need to and should be doing more. Um, it's really just a capacity issue because it takes, you know, well, she said it takes a long time to do each one. So we went back after the fact, we measured it, and we found out um, on average it takes 54 minutes to do one travel post payment audit. And so at that point in time, we were trying at our, you know, our capacity was at 50. That's what we were handling in a month. So we took the, the, uh, the RPA tool and we had a contract that within the contract, it did say that we could do some enhancing. Um, and um, there were automation terms in there. So we talked to the contractor and said, hey, this is in scope in the contract and we'd really like to do this. Um, would you engage? They said, absolutely. And what we were able to do was quite impressive. So the first thing we did was an as-is assessment and found out that it takes 54 minutes right now on average to do the, the travel post-payment audit. Um, we went through about uh, exploratory for about 45 days, maybe 60 tops. Uh, we started building um, at day 60 and by day 90, we had our prototype and we started processing travel post-payments uh, using the RPA tool. So the first time we went through, I want to say it went from 54 minutes down to 14 minutes. We were like, wow, that's really good. So, you know, we still have a few things to tweak. Next time it was nine minutes. The next time we did it, it went down to five minutes for each travel post payment audit. And we were really happy. And then it turned around and went back up to about 12 minutes. So note to the to everybody listening, when you have RPA, you have to babysit RPA. You don't just turn it on and, and think that it runs and that everything's going to be hunky-dory and you, you, know, you can just go to sleep at night and everything's going to be magically on your table, uh, your desktop and a dashboard the next morning. Uh, it turned out that our optical character recognition failed on us. And really simple, we went back, we fixed that problem. We were back under nine minutes for our average um, uh, time. So we got an 82% efficiency increase, but we took the efficiency increase and we did not say this is a return on investment. We said, this is a capacity item. 
we immediately were able to up the number of travel postpayment audits to 200, at least 200 per month. So now we are much better from a compliance perspective and everybody involved in the entire process knows that we have to watch RPA very closely, but now that they see the, 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 the value of what it brings to them and how much it helps them in their job, um, we have other places across the organization just literally throwing at me um, RPA projects that they would like to tackle. And I think that's great because that means that the idea the concept is, is catching on. But what I want to do is I want to be very smart because it's a tool and it needs to be used in the right place. And we're not done. So we're down to nine minutes. I am positive. I love to take the intelligent automation approach. And one of the, the terms that I've heard that's quite funny in my mind, but it's very, very true, is people say that RPA is a gateway drug. Well, it kind of is. Um, because once you do RPA, there are other technologies that you can throw on top of the process to make the efficiencies just, you know, grow so fast. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, I've done that in my other work under reinvent grants management. And that's where I want to go next is with the team. Okay. Do we want to throw a little AI on top of this so that the AI can track what the individuals are doing so that when we get a dashboard that is presented to somebody with the work, it's not just a dashboard of here's your cue for the day. It's here's your cue for the day. And by the way, based on recent activities, um, item number one, we recommend that you do X with. Item number two, we recommend you do Y with because the AI is learning each and every single time somebody makes a decision on in that process that the AI can see and learn from, you will build a confidence model so that at some point in time, you're going to get to the point where when it's recommending that you do X or it's recommending you do Y, you're going. To, the probability is, is in the high 90s that that's exactly the activity or the choice that you're going to make. But be careful because we don't want to see this as Anybody looking at it as you're replacing my job, we are we are augmenting somebody's job. That it, it, the human should always be the point that makes the final decision. And I'm sticking to my guns on that. I think that the AI, uh, natural language processing, all that can be so so beneficial. But let's leave the that decision um, to the to the human. How is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center (PSC) using automation? To transform the way it does business? We'll explore this question and so much more when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Mike Peckham, Acting Chief Financial Officer and Director of the Financial Management Portfolio at HHS's Program Support Center. Mike, you mentioned earlier you rejoined uh, the Program Support Center after leading the reInvent Grants Management Transformation Initiative and the HHS Data Act Initiative. Would you tell us more about these efforts? And can you tell us what lessons you learned from your efforts that you brought to your current role? Absolutely. The, um, the Data Act, was, as I mentioned earlier, it was so much fun because getting to engage with recipients and understand the pain points that they were feeling was eye-opening. Um, and I, they also shared with me what they call the, uh, the spaghetti chart. And literally, you will get a headache in five minutes looking at this chart of the number of different systems that one, one recipient organization, how many different government agencies and how many different systems within those government agencies they may have to deal with. It is bad. It's, it's just, you know, like I said, you're going to get a, a headache within five minutes of trying to figure this thing out. So when we did the data act, it was uh, interesting because I got asked the question, if I'm not mistaken, so I, I, I had the privilege, or, or maybe you don't want to call it the privilege, of, of testifying on the work that we had done. And uh, HHS got a lot of kudos uh, about it, but we also got the question from the staffers of, you've done a great job in setting up uh, you know, things that you could do under the Data Act to make improvements within the grant uh, community. What system are you building? And at the point in time, I had to give the honest answer of, this is an unfunded mandate. I'm not building any system. I, I, I'm really sorry. I would love to if, if I had the opportunity. Well, not necessarily well-received, but the point was taken. So when we got into reInvent Grants Management and I was you know, up uh, talking to the senior executives at, at the department level, I said, the one thing we have to do under reInvent Grants Management, we have to build a system to show folks that we really learned something from the Data Act and we're moving on what we learned. And so from that perspective, I got the okay to, um, we requested funding, we were uh, provided funding to explore what would be the right thing to do. And I had tons of ideas, Michael. I really, I, I had a lot of different things I wanted to look at. But what we did was we said, okay, let's step back and listen to what the users told us under the Data Act. Let's go back out and let's engage the users and understand where their pain points are. But this wasn't just the recipients. This was all users, meaning grant recipients, but on the federal side, it was the awarding organizations, the grants management specialists, the grants management officer, the financial folks, the budget folks, the program office folks, anybody that we could get time with and talk to and understand what they liked about how they were currently managing grants and what they didn't like about currently managing grants. We took all that information, we used an agile approach, um, we built user stories and it just popped up to us very quickly that if we could do something in the realm of the risk assessment, it could have a return on investment that we really quite honestly didn't imagine what it was going to be when we first walked into it, but utilized a whole bunch of different technology, you know, happy to go into that a little bit more. But the bottom line here is we took a process that is taking four to eight hours right now. And that's not just one person, that's multiple different people. And Many folks have said four to eight hours is a lean estimate. We risk adjusted that estimate down to four hours. And we built a system where you can do the cursory work that needs to be done with 
whenever, so 90 some percent of the time when you do a risk assessment, everything looks fine and you don't have to move any further. We can do that in 15 minutes now. And that is just incredible. If you look at the savings across HHS, um, if, if implemented across HHS, that we could recognize $142 million, and I like to re, uh, call it return to mission, because the idea here is it's not a return on investment because we want the recipients to be focused on mission outcomes. We want them to focus on the outcomes of the goal of the grant. So if we can take you know, $142 million, apply that to more mission-related activities, that is a huge, huge opportunity for the grant recipient and the American people. So, Mike, that's a wonderful story. You mentioned uh, the use of Vagile uh, methods, uh, and you you talked about the technologies that you put in place and the methods. You, I, I would like you to elaborate on the sort of those core transformational strategies, whether it's human-centered design, Agile, how impactful they've been on your work, what lessons and best practices you would like to share with us. So you just you just said magic words to me, Michael. Human-centered design. That should be part of every single project you do that's related to uh, process people and systems moving forward. Because you need to engage. Don't ever assume that you know what the users like and don't like. You're going to hear stuff that is going to irk you. And you're going to hear stuff that you go, wow, I totally agree with that. Don't worry. All that will help you to build the right user stories because you're going to have outliers. You take a parabola a type of idea and you, you, you know, do the bell curve and you top things off on both ends. You will come up with some pretty strong empirical data that says, here's, here are the areas where we need to move, where we need to make improvements, where we need to do something. So if you're not going to use human centered or user centered design, you're probably going to face the same challenges that I've faced throughout my entire career. Agile is also just an incredible asset. Because with the Agile methodology, um, so when I started doing Data Act, everybody was talking about how we were using an Agile approach. And while I had heard about Agile, I really didn't know Agile. So the first thing I did was I went out, I took a course, I got certified in Agile so I could understand what people were talking about. And basically, you know, if you're, like I said before, you know, management by walking around and being engaged, well, if you're going to walk the walk, talk the talk. So um, got certified and right away I could talk to somebody and while they may have been using, or they may have said the magic words that we're using an agile development approach, the terms they use behind that would tell you very quickly that they weren't. Um, they would start talking about, you know, requirement gathering and when are you scheduling your release and, and you know, things like that. So the human-centered design is, is, is the first place to start. Mix that with the agile development because when you get feedback from the users and you have a two or three-week sprint, and you make a change that that user has asked for, whatever the system, whatever the um, microservice is that you're creating, if you can go back two to three weeks later and show them that you have tried to address it, you may not have fixed the problem, but all of a sudden you see a change in the attitude. It's like, oh, hold on. They actually listen to me and they're trying to do something about it. And it creates this buy-in. It creates this organic growth of whatever it is that you're trying to implement where the users want it more than anybody else. And it's really, really hard to argue, um, you know, when you have that demographic kind of clamoring and saying, hey, I, I really want this tool that they have that they're building, um, and when am I gonna get it? Not, when are you guys gonna be shoving that new system down my throat? Um, it, it changes everything, quite honestly. That's amazing. So well, I have a couple more questions I'd like to ask you, Mike. The, the one question is around, uh, given all this work you've done, 
with, uh, and you made a really good point the last uh, last segment around. We're not necessarily instituting new systems, but we're changing we're changing people's behaviors in a lot of ways, and you got to get them to engage in that. And I was wondering, are there any insights you'd like to share with us about cultivating a sort of a culture of innovation and and challenging the old ways of doing business? So when I was going out and meeting, uh, I was speaking at a lot of conferences doing reinvent grants management, and the conferences allowed the opportunity to meet and to have the, the sidebar rooms where we were doing human-centered design sessions. But whenever I had the opportunity, and, and a great example of that was when I was at the Grant Professionals Association annual meeting in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken, 2017, maybe 18, but regardless, went out there and had about a thousand people in the audience. And so I asked a real simple question. I said, hey, how many of you all use Facebook? And had a few hands up. And then I said, all right, how many of you use Uber? Well, I saw hands go down. I said, no, no, no. If you use Facebook, keep your hand up. Uber, a few more hands go up. And then I say, okay, here's the big one. How many of you have used Amazon? And pretty much at that point, every hand I could see was raised. The question I asked following that was, how many of you had training on any of those systems? Because they are systems. And the training couldn't be your 12-year-old. And it was funny because there were a lot of laughs from the audience. But it's very, very true. And I said, do you know why that is? And I saw some puzzled faces, but I didn't hear anybody shout out an answer. Um, I said, because the systems are intuitive. They, they do what you expect them to do. Now, granted, they have little kinks here and there, and, and I've, I've noted little kinks in it, Uber. But for the overall, the main purpose, when you start talking agile, the minimally viable product, like the core functionality, these systems do exactly what they're designed to do, and they do it with you know, little to no training. And so that was literally the challenge that I had for my team within reInvent Grants Management was we have to change the dynamic. We have to get people on board with the idea or the concept that this great technology is available in our private uh, lives. We can be using the same exact technology in our professional lives. Why aren't we? And have everybody asking that question, why aren't we? And if you start to think about it, I mean, I know I would answer that question five years ago because I wouldn't think it was possible. Well, we've shown a lot of videos of the art of the possible. We've had good reaction. We've had poor reaction. But the idea is there can be a different future for how we manage um, systems. And I'd love to see that happening more and more and more. How are you using data and data analytics, not only to improve services and quality, but maybe also identify new solutions and services? Well, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? Or I don't know. Uh, we gave out 600 billion in grants last year. So that will make it a $600 billion question. Uh, we have tons and tons of data. The challenge is, I don't think we know, and, and I'm going to talk across federal government. Uh, it, you know, everybody knows the systems that they have, they know the data they have in their systems. But do we have an inventory across the federal government of what data and where do we have it? And I mean, that's just a question. Do we have that? Do the systems that we're storing this data in, once we have an inventory of that, do these have APIs? Or am I going to look at some other type of remediation to get to the data that I'm trying to access? Um, and finally, do we have a data sharing agreement? Super important within the federal government, because generally, if you're taking information from a system and you're going to utilize the information, regardless of whether you're going to utilize it for producing a report or using it in a system. You have to have some agreement that says, 
I'm using this data for this purpose for this period of time. And that can be very, very limiting. Um, it, it's a challenge that we're all facing over and over again. So I think if we address the, the, the data sharing agreement first, I know I brought it up third, but if we, if we start to think about the idea of conceptually, and this is very, very high level, if you look at the, uh, the CHIPRA program, the uh, Children's Health Insurance Program Reauthorization Act. So um, the best of my recollection, it's an act that was basically put in place to uh, have insurance, health insurance for underinsured children and eligible adults. You know, baseline idea, baseline concept. The metrics that I've seen around that are how many folks are enrolled in the program, where are they enrolled, demographically speaking, and how much money is going out. But if you go back and you start to think about what's the intent of the law, the statute isn't necessarily about making sure somebody has insurance. Yes, that's what they're calling for. But I think the real intent that we're looking for is if you're talking about children, children get sick, children miss school. If children don't have insurance to to help them to get over the sickness, are they going to move throughout their, progress throughout their educational career and become a graduate of a, a high school, a graduate of a college, and then go on to have a productive and contributing life as a member of society? And I think that last bit is what we're really trying to get to. We're trying to give these folks an edge so that they can be as competitive as anybody else when it comes to being in the marketplace for their own good but we don't have the information to share in order to tell us that long-term outcome. At least I haven't seen it. I'll put it that way. So if you think about a data sharing agreement and going back to your original uh, question, I would love to say, okay, let's, let's do a study and let's say how many folks are enrolled in this area. Let's de-identify everybody. Let's look at the graduation rates. Have the graduation rates in that area gone up or down? Well, I can't tell you that without getting information from the Department of Education, can I? And I you know, may or may not have a data sharing agreement with them. Now, are those people going to go on to a higher education? Have you seen a, you know, in the demographic that you're looking at, have you seen a higher application rate to higher education? Have you seen a higher you know, um, graduation rate? What, what does all of that look like over a 20 to 25 year period? And that is the type of data that if you start to, you know, talk about the Evidence Act or something uh, where we're talking about what a performance measurement is, this is really getting to the heart of the matter. It all comes back to, the, you know, the first thing, knowing what data you have and where you have it, how can you get to it? Is it easily accessible? And the most important piece of that being the data sharing agreements that we can utilize the data, de-identified. I don't want, you know, I don't want identification around who's done what, but just so we can get that, that overall look at what the outcomes are of these different types of um, benefits that we are providing to folks. That's a wonderful answer. Like as you reflect on your career in public service, um, I was wondering what advice would you give someone who is considering such a career? Um, so I was fortunate enough, as I said, to, in my early career to work for uh, C. Everett Coop when he was Surgeon General. And I got to watch him be a leader, an impactful leader during the AIDS epidemic. And then education around smoking. Um, you know, I'm a little older, not everybody uh, remembers this, but he had a smoke-free society 2000 pin that he was giving to anybody who uh, quit smoking before the year 2000, because his goal was by 2000 to, you know, have smoking out of the general um, 
I will say out of restaurants, out of all the, the, the public spaces where people were confined. Um, I learned a lot there because I'm watching this man and I said, wow, he's leading, making a, an, driving a change, driving impact across the federal government, which has a huge you know, public health um, impact. Um, I think that the bottom line is many people choose to work in the federal government because they know from that perspective they can lead the, the, the impact that's going to happen across you know, the entire uh, uh, American people. And that can happen through you know, uh, it, you know, a contract, a grant, however it is that it's, it's working. It can work by being that, that political figure who is just um, focusing in on one item that, that they have a lot of concern and a lot of care about. And so if you want to lead the change, being in the federal government is a great, great place to be. Not everybody wants to do that, but that's great. If you want to support the change, you can also do that by being a contractor or, or, or grant recipient working with the federal government. What it comes down to is if, if, if it relates to your personal cause and you are committed to help facilitate positive change, I think either choice, being in the government leading change or being a contractor or grantee supporting the change, um, is a great career path, and it can be incredibly self-rewarding. Re, uh, well, Mike, that's a, a great perspective. And I, I want to thank you for joining me today and coming on the show uh, and spending some time with us. But more importantly, I'd like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Oh, thank you. It's On both fronts, it has been my pleasure. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Mike Peckham acting chief financial officer and director of the financial management portfolio at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Program Support Center. Be sure to join us next time for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, you can subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics. Urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. WFED Washington. WTOP-FM HD2 Washington. W283DG Sterling. WTLP-FM HD2 Braddock Heights Frederick. Federal News Network is the news organization of record for the federal community. We're nonpartisan, nonpolitical, and our job is to help federal government and contracting executives make informed decisions. We inform federal managers, contractors, and policymakers on issues related to the federal workforce, management, and acquisition, pay benefits and retirement, the Defense Department, and federal IT. Portions pre-recorded. Nights and weekends, we air Washington Nationals, Capitals, and Wizards, and the Navy Midshipmen. We are the Washington, D.C. home of Navy Athletics. Download the Federal News Network app on the App Store or Google Play Store. Play Federal News Network on Alexa. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Federal News Network. Our mission is helping you meet your mission.